Big Fluff. What are the seven contradictions of Zaripa, watcher of the equator? Oh, jeez. I knew this, too. Oh. Uh, uh, he really, this one you got me completely stumped on. I'm sorry. <laughs> Does it have something to do with the metric system? Oh, forget it. This is a waste of time. Come on over here, honey. You've managed to charm me with your moronic innocence. Oh, great. Well, you know what I always say? It pays to be yourself. <laughs> oh. oh, baby. Come on, we've got to finish before my husband Mulligan comes home. One down, when you put five it to go. This could take all night. <laughs> oh. Vanish. Uh -huh. Okay, you're gonna do that. You give me uh -huh. Oh, jeez, that's different, isn't it? Uh-huh. These pipes are clean! <laughs> Mm-hmm. And how. Half man, half shark, equals one complete gentleman. Hey, everybody. I'm Joel Murphy. And I'm Andy McIntyre. And this is Silver Linings Playback, the podcast where we watch maligned movies and we find their silver linings. And maybe this podcast has finally broken us, but uh, in celebration of last week's 150th episode, we decided we're going to intentionally pick movies that we we have a great affinity for, uh, but are otherwise maligned by the general movie going public. And... Uh, so this week we're doing Cabin Boy. Uh, this is one of my personal favorites. Uh, so I'm very excited to talk about Cabin Boy. Do you know what I, I think? I think three years ago when we started 150 episodes, we were two fancy lads. We were. In our in our fancy wigs. and our, our, our christening wigs. <laughs> our christening wigs and our dapper shorts and our silk so socks. And we... You know, in a way, we got on the wrong boat thinking we were going to Hawaii. And that was the boat of watching terrible movies. And, and went through the hell's bucket. Yeah. That is Garfield, A Tale of Two Kitties. And or Caddyshack, too. And yeah, now uh, we're, we sweat and we smell kind of gamey and we love it. And we are no longer cabin boys. <laughs> we are cabin men. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's an apt analogy that this movie is is autobiographical in ways I never had even considered before <laughs> thinking about uh, you bring it up 12 seconds ago. So I'm glad I could contextualize that for you. Yeah, it's really good to bring it into to laser focus, something we're known for on the SLP podcast. By the way, I said this to you before we started, but I'm going to I'm going to come out hot with it early silver lining before we get into anything else. You own this movie that, like you said, this was your choice uh, for this month, and uh, I do not. And I went to rent it and was like four ninety nine on Apple to rent this. No, no, my friend, four ninety nine on Apple to buy it. So now, 
we are both proud owners of Cabin Boy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, while we are not paid shills uh, for anything on this podcast, can't recommend paying. Can't recommend a better way to spend four ninety nine than Cabin Boy. No, I, yeah, it's for sure worth it. It's a it's a cool eighty minutes. <laughs> yeah, I was very surprised by that runtime too. But uh, a, not a lot of wasted motion in this one. <laughs> no, no, for sure, no. But uh, but yeah, uh, we watched Cabin Boy, and we're I think I think this month is gonna be overwhelmingly positive. But I do think we have to do our due diligence and maybe at the top here at least try to figure out why uh i mean you were looking up before we started why this didn't win any academy awards and then you i think you locked in on it that it was in the same year as uh forest gump pulp fiction and shawshank redemption so it had some yeah. stiff competition not to mention um ed wood four weddings and a funeral bullets over broadway um and several other that was a big year for movies 1994 well and ed wood is perfect that you bring that up because that is perhaps the most fascinating piece of trivia about this movie is tim burton was supposed to direct cabin boy he had reached out to chris elliott because he was a fan of his television show and in fact he produced this movie and did a lot of the designs which i think is obvious when you know it like, yeah, when you're aware that Tim Burton was involved, you go, oh, that makes so much sense. But he ultimately did not direct this because he got Ed Wood, which was one of his dream projects. And I think you could make a case for Ed Wood, Ed Wood being one of Tim Burton's best movies. I think you could make that case. I would not personally make it. And it's not one of my favorite of his. Like, it's uh good, but it's not in my top tier of Tim Burton movies because he it's made Batman. My, it, right. Yeah. No, I get it. Um, yeah. No, it's, 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 it's not, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites, but it might be from a movie making standpoint. I think one of his stronger efforts, it's very good. And it's a very, like, I understand why it was Tim Burton's dream project. And I think that comes through in the film, but I will say I'm a little sad that we didn't get to see the Tim Burton directed version of this film. Yeah, no, not to not to cast any aspersion on Adam Resnick, who did direct this, uh, who was a longtime writing collaborator with Chris Elliott on Get a Life, um, on the David Letterman show, all the places. Um, but yeah, a Tim Burton directed one. I think it would have been I think the Ray Harryhausen would have been dialed up to 11 instead of like the 9.5 that this movie was at. I think that's what it is, is that. The directing in this film, and I this is going to sound more backhanded than I mean it to, but it is perfectly like adequate. It's it's it does exactly what it needs to do. It's not badly directed. Everything is well shot. I like a lot of the effects. I like the rocking boat and uh, there's various things that I think are done really well. Obviously, yeah, the the stop motion stuff, the giant in the water. I think it's a it's a well-directed film. It's a competently directed film, but it doesn't have that flair that someone like Tim Burton would have brought to it. It, it has a, a workman director versus a visionary, weird, kooky director who would have yeah. made it stranger and bigger. Tim Burton is maybe one of the auteurist of auteur directors of the last 30 years and it would have been 
it would have been interesting because it would have almost certainly had a larger budget. And I don't know if that would have made it better or worse. Yeah, I, I'd i be fascinated to know what the budget of this film was. $12. Because, because, yeah, a lot of it feels like it was made very cheaply. But then I do think money went to certain places. And a lot of them, I think, the right places of, you know, some of the the effects. I'm sure the stop motion wasn't cheap to do. I'm sure right. making a giant hand to hold Chris Elliott <laughs> or a tiny Chris Elliott doll to be squeezed by the giant. Like all of those things, money clearly went into them. Yeah. But 90% of the movie is a set that has water with various backdrops and a boat. Yeah, no, it's a wet set with matte paintings and a boat. A hundred percent. Yeah. Which, yeah. So the, I can't imagine a lot of money. And, and wet sets aren't cheap, but relative to everything else well and when it's primarily your main set right it, it saves a lot of money when it's all oh, the yeah. and they're not doing it's not a james cameron film there's a little bit in the water and underwater but most of it really is just on a boat yeah where yeah it's it this movie stretches. the money is well spent i would say like they Whoever was the uh, financier and the the accountant for this movie did a good job of making sure the money was well spent. Every dollar is up on that screen. Yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. Nothing was skimmed off the top. Uh, but we're not talking about uh, we're not to the silver linings yet. Like that's <laughs> that's how positive this episode is going to be. Um, I think so. Obviously, not counting the huge amount of competition that this movie had. Because you figure that if there were 10 Academy Award nominees that year, this would have been one of them. I think that's a given. This was back in the five movies. I think we can be sure that it was number six. Yeah, I I think that kind of goes without saying. Yeah. Um, But this movie has a very particular sense of humor. And if it's not yours, I have to imagine this movie is unwatchable. That sense of humor, to be clear, is Chris Elliott. Like, just you have to like specifically his comedy. Which is very particular. I will I will say this, I think, is a good way uh, to put my cards on the table. And I haven't told you this until now because I did not want to rain on your parade and I wanted to go into it with an open mind. That I watched this movie when it came out, so I would have been 12, I think. And yeah, uh, I saw it in the theater. I remember watching it in the theater. <laughs> and I did not like it. You know, where it it just didn't. And I think here's the crazy thing. I actually think I might have seen it by myself. I think I was like just old enough that I think my parents might have dropped me off at Cabin Boy because I wanted to see it. And I think the trailer had made me think it was going to be like a silly, fun movie. And then 12 year old me watched it and was like, I don't get any of this. This is just long and weird. And so that was my only experience with this movie until now and i watched it and like i said i didn't want to you know say anything to you and again i think the purpose the mission of this podcast is i'm watching it this we're finding silver linings and i am delighted to say that this time being an adult and having the sense of humor that i now do i thought it was hilarious (laughs) yeah no i think i think that's accurate I, i don't think that rains on my parade in any way shape or form no this um uh, my brothers and I were huge fans of Get a Life, which is just a bananas lost hidden gem sitcom from the 90s. Yes. Yeah. Um, it is 
arguably cut from a similar cloth to like an Arrested Development, but a little more surreal. And it, like it plays on the awkward humor, but then there's like the episode Zoo Animals on Wheels, which I think the title says everything you need to know. Yeah. Um, they do a musical on roller skates about a zoo. It's amazing. Um, and so, and just like uh, my brothers were big Letterman fans. I'm, I'm a little bit younger, so I didn't, I wasn't allowed to stay up to watch Letterman until probably right around when this movie came out. Um, and so in Chris Elliott was a huge part of the Letterman show playing the guy under the stairs. And, well, and he was a writer for Letterman. And he was a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this movie uh, is very, I would say this movie is on the list of most formative movies for my sense of humor in a lot of ways. Oh, wow. No, that is fascinating. Like I said, I, I think I didn't have that test and I didn't have the older brothers like showing it to me. I definitely hadn't seen Get a Life at that point. Yeah, uh, I might have seen Letterman. Weirdly, I might have even known Chris Elliott from Letterman because I did tend to stay up way too late and watch late night shows. So sure, that actually is possible. But uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't really. It didn't hit me, and I, I didn't have this sense of humor developed. And yes, I think that that is the biggest sort of maligning is. It's an all-in proposition that I don't think there's a middle ground. No one is going to watch this movie and be neutral on it. You're either going to watch it and find it hilarious or you're going to hate it. Are you going to think it's, this is so dumb? Why did I just waste an hour and 20 minutes of my life? Which, again, early silver lining, you only wasted an hour and 20 minutes of your life. Yeah. Uh, we, <laughs> Babylon was three hours. <laughs> right. And that felt way more wasted. Yeah. Um, yeah. And. Which, there are a lot of great moments in Babylon, but... But also weird, I feel like if you went up to someone on the street and you showed them just maybe like a, the poster of Babylon and the poster of Cabin Boy, and you said, in one of these movies, an elephant graphically has diarrhea on two men, which one is it? Most people, if they hadn't seen either one, would guess Cabin Boy. Yeah, and it's in, it's in the first sequence of... Of Babylon. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, no. Um, but I think that gets to the core of Chris Elliott's humor is that he's in a lot of ways one of the kings of dumb smart comedy or smart dumb comedy. I'm not sure how you want to spin it. Um, because he typically plays just doofuses and uh people that don't get how the world works. Uh, but to take like the improv adage, he plays those people to the top of his intelligence. Yeah. Well, and I mean it's truly fascinating that there's a legit arc to his character that he starts as, again, a fancy lad. So a lot of it in the beginning is he's sheltered and privileged and he has never faced adversity in his life. And yes. so that explains a lot. And then I think the the next pivotal thing to happen is because the people. So I oh we should set this up real quick. It's a very simple. So he's. A fancy lad who's just graduated and he's supposed to get on a big fancy boat and go to Hawaii, but he's so annoying that his driver throws him out of the car and he wanders around and ends up on the wrong boat and he ends up on a gruff, uh, like fishing Hard boat. Scrabble shipping boat, a fishing boat. Yeah. And, uh, so he's on that boat and, but I think the next thing is that he annoys the crew so much that they leave him out for nine days tied to a little raft like that the boat is dragging and he goes insane. Yeah. Well, and this is also after he gets their cabin boy murdered or gets him, gets their cabin boy played by Andy Richter killed. Yeah. Which I believe I read was Andy Richter's first, first film. Movie role. 
and he's great. Andy Richter is great. But yeah, he he acts it because he convinces this sweet, dumb cabin boy to sail him to Hawaii where he's meant to go because he got on the wrong boat. And then uh, they go through what is it? The devil's hell's bucket, hell's bucket. And uh, then, yeah, Andy Richter falls overboard and drowns and then he becomes a new cabin boy and they tie him behind the raft and he he drinks seawater and he's in the sun and he has no one to talk to and he goes insane. Yes. And then the third pivotal thing to happen where we get another change in the character is the clip that we played at the beginning where, uh, as you might have gathered, his pipes were quite backed up because he... Had was never such a fancy lad. He was a fancy lad and he had never had sex. And by the end of that, his pipes are clean. And then he heroically saves the day. Uh, we also left out, arguably, the other most pivotal moment is that when he's going insane and falls off of this little raft, he gets befriended by Chalky. A half, half shark, m- half man. Half shark, half man. Yeah. And I thought one you- complete gentleman. Yes. Which we forget the other, uh, there's another pivotal thing, which is then when he's back on the boat that he encounters what he thinks is a drowning woman, but is actually a woman sleeping who was uh, swimming across the world, starting in Baltimore. And uh, he brings her on the boat, which disqualifies her from her world record that she was trying to set. And so then she's also stuck on the boat and that he's trying to win her over. Right, because he falls in love with her. And then they do fall in love because he learns how to please a woman. But also, yeah, because that's once he has sex, then he is irresistible to her. <laughs> but, I, but I think that's what I'm trying to get at is that Chris Elliott actually does kind of have this character work in different phases where there's like the first phase is he's a very annoying, fancy gentleman. And he just which... I think wisely he realizes would get old. And so then you put him on the raft because he's so annoying. He goes crazy. And now for this next chunk of the movie, he's crazy. And, you know, he's saying weird stuff and he's acting erratic. And then at the end of the movie, he once he has sex with the, you know, six armed blue woman that lives in a cave, then he is much more suave and manageable to deal with. Yeah. And, that, and, and finds that he loves the sea, and that's where he belongs. And that, my friends, in case you missed it, is what Joseph Campbell would call the hero's journey. That's a road of trials, and that's a man who arrives home having changed. It, it, it really is the hero. Like, this is the hero's journey, 100%. No, it really is. And, it, like, those are the beats. Those are the different, like, trials that he goes through that change yeah, him. Call to adventure. Et yeah, cetera, et cetera. it's a yeah. literal call to adventure. He gets on a boat and they sail like out into the ocean. Uh, but yeah, no, the, the again. I think in some ways we're making this movie sound better and tighter than maybe it is, but it the plot is sound like it does have the movie is a, a sound plot. Well, I think that's what I'm trying to get at, I, because I think you set it up that it's smart dumb that chris elliott you could look at this movie and be like this is a weird improvisational jazz comedy where just a thing happens and the next thing happens and you wouldn't be wrong but you could also look at it and go this is a tightly structured hero's journey story 
about a fancy lad who goes through a change and becomes a rugged sailor. And you would also be correct because yeah. both things are simultaneously true. It is both smart and dumb. Yeah. Um, and just like, I mean, obviously this for you, your experience growing up, you know, uh, it wasn't as such, but this was up there with some of the most quoted movies of my childhood or my adolescence, I guess. Um, just, just like when he's uh, being sort of ex right at the top, when he's sort of being explained by the headmaster of what an a-hole he is. And then he just looks up and he's like, sorry, I wasn't listening. I was trying to figure out what drifters corpse those shoes must have came from. No, that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that just, I think that speaks to just how, uh, how out of touch and aloof and just privileged he is. Uh, when he says the prayer uh, that he won't uh, even get a bead of sweat on his brow. <laughs> and just little things like when he he asks uh, Kenneth, the cabin boy, for a cup of bullion, he gets given a cup of chum. Yeah. And he drinks his like, very zesty. Yeah. Quite robust. Yeah, the fact that it's not, I think that is the the Chris Elliott touch is that a lot of people would do that joke that he asks for bullion and he gets chum. But most people would have a spit take there, would have the guy absolutely like retching, you know, this is disgusting. No, he's going to subvert your expectation. He doesn't mind it so much. Yeah, it's it's a it's a nice, it's a nice glass of bullion, a nice yeah. cup of bullion. Yeah, I don't know why, but. The one line that I think is standing out to me, and unfortunately, I did not grow up with this movie, so I can't quote it word for word. But I do like at the end when he's telling the captain that he reminds him of the scarecrow from that classic children's tale. And he goes, the Wizard of Oz? No, I believe it was the Great Gatsby. It's like, no, I'm fairly certain it was the Great Gatsby. <laughs> like, just A+. plus. Yeah, no, that... that um, uh, Yeah, and so, yeah, like, if these types of one-liners aren't clicking with you and there's other even little ones um like when john bryan is like oh those flounders are bloodthirsty bastards <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, such a ridiculous non sequitur of a line um and yeah and it's it's just one of many that there are just these uh like when andy richter's like this is how a harem girl dances. Oh my god. Andy Apropos Richter absolutely nothing. Andy Richter does some great work in this film. Yeah, it's another instance where I think if there were a sixth nominee for supporting actor that Mr. Richter would have gotten it. I honestly when he's first introduced the complete and I mean this as the high compliment that it is imbecilic look on his face the first <laughs> second that we see him is beautiful yeah no it's <laughs> <laughs> and from when he just like twirls the the steering wheel of the ship like a thousand times and then ticks it just back a little bit like, all right we're going to hawaii yeah <laughs> uh right up to like when uh andy or when um chris elliott hallucinates him and he's just perfectly suave in the white tuxedo. And he's just like bone suave. Just little, just little moments like that are delightful. Which I, I find that scene fascinating too, because I think you can go two ways with interpreting that is like one in death. This imbecile has become the best version of himself or two. 
he is imagining him, and Chris Elliott's character is only capable of imagining people as fancy lads. Right. Dumb, smart comedy. Yeah. No, it, it's... Yeah. Or smart, dumb comedy, I think, is probably the better way to do it. Smart, dumb, um, smart. Yeah, smart, dumb, smart. Smart, dumb, dumb, smart. Well, I think, I mean, I don't know if there's anything else that we need to... Like, I think we could probably just spend the rest of the... Well, I mean, I think just, like... This movie is made for a small budget. The special effects are cheesy. If you can't get past that, you're going to have a hard time enjoying this movie. I think that's a pretty valid critique. I don't think it um, is because I'm actually going to talk about them in the. Oh, I love them, but I'm, I'm yeah. saying I think I think I could see someone that being enough of a distractor for someone. I love them. I will say that Molly said something to me. She watched it with me and she pointed out she was like, if this movie was made now, they would use CGI and it would ruin it. Mm-hmm. That a lot of the charm of this movie, I actually think, is the the very low budget practical special effects. Yeah, no, I think I think I think you might be right about that. I think the other possibility it'd be sort of in like a Velocipaster way, they would have gone too far the other way. But that's what I mean. And yeah, it's there's something very charming in the fact that it looks like it looks like a movie that a bunch of friends got together and made for the money that they had on hand. And I think that yeah. is its charm. Sure. No, I'm I'm fully ready to pivot. Well, yeah. and I I think we can stay there. And as we pivot, what I will say is that one of those friends was Tim Burton. So like, yeah. I think that you Tim Burton's influence is still all over this, even though he didn't mm-hmm. direct it. And you can see that in a lot of the character designs and a lot of the production designs they it all feels very tim burton to me yeah and he was listed as a producer and i have a feeling that he was that wasn't just an idle credit for like being a financier or anything like that i think he probably actually produced this movie a little bit well i'd be curious what the timeline is he might have done pre-production for this movie like if he was planning to direct it i don't know when he dropped out so he might have been involved in like act, planning to direct it and then had to pass it off to someone else. So like, you know, he, he probably was very involved in the beginning. Uh, speaking of talented people involved in this movie, uh, when I was watching the, when I started watching it this afternoon uh, and I was watching the opening credits, I see costume designer, Colleen Atwood. And I'm like, that sounds familiar. She's been nominated for nine Academy Awards and won five. Oh, Wow. <laughs> Like what stuff? Um, Memoirs of a Geisha, uh, one of the a couple of the Harry Potter movies, um, and a few others. Like she's a very well respected and well regarded costume designer for for film. That's awesome. Yeah, and she did, and um, and she was already. I mean, this wasn't like this was one of her first movies. Like she'd already had a reasonable career up to this point, but she's won multiple uh, best costume design Oscars, and so I thought that was like, oh. I mean, the costume and the weird thing is the costumes in this movie are perfect. Mm-hmm. Like they're not showy. They don't seem out of place. Uh, it just like it looks like exactly what everyone should be wearing in the movie. Which I did notice. I don't know if you had this thought, but so you get Brian Doyle Murray is in this film as one of the crewmen. His name is Skunk. And he is dressed in a classic fisherman look where he has a little red cap. And he's got the kind of striped shirt and everything. And it hit me. He's obviously the brother of Bill Murray, who wore a strikingly similar red hat and fisherman outfit in the Life Aquatic. Yes. That's just we're a both, weird. 
who were both copying Jacques Cousteau. Well, right. Yeah. But it, it just hit me that like, yeah, they, there is a. Uh, or Cousteau. Sorry. Cousteau's uh, Pink Panther. Yeah. Cousteau. Uh, Inspector. Anyways, yes. Inspector Jacques Cousteau. Yes. That's our hybrid character that he yes. solves sea crimes. Yeah. Sea mysteries. Yes. On a, on a crime solving boat. Yeah, He's on a crime solving boat. And and the problem is that a lot of the murders fall under maritime law. So right. which is crazy. It's just wild west. Yeah. So it's really like a part of it is proving it, but it's even harder to actually have someone held accountable. Cause then they're like, no, just walk the plank. Like you're the murderer. Okay. Well, I'm going to murder you. Walk the plank. So it's right. a lot of what he deals with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> love it. Uh, but yeah, no, this, um, let's talk about the fishermen. Because they're the heart and soul of this film. They are. Yes, for sure. And I think they're all... It's nice because... You know, you and I do improv. And there's they're all of a similar ilk. But each one feels just defined enough to, that they don't all feel like the same character. Yeah. And, and they're all like classic that guy actors. Because Rich, Rich Brinkley plays the captain... Um, he's probably the least well-known of the three. Uh, Paps is played by James Gammon, most famous uh, for playing the manager in the Major League movies. Which he has one of the greatest voices in all of cinema. Oh, and... <laughs> Give him the heater, Ricky. Give him the heater. <laughs> and I don't know that there's a human being who looks more like their voice, who sounds more accurate to their voice than James Gammon. No, he's amazing. And yeah, you will always know that it's him because you could close your eyes and be sure that it's him. But yeah, fantastic casting is just a grizzled fisherman. We already mentioned and, Brian Murray, a skunk. Yeah, a skunk. And then Brian James, who's another classic that guy actor uh, who was active for about 17 years and was in over 200 movies. Yeah, he's yeah, he works a ton for um, sure. Yeah, probably most famous for Blade Runner. But he's been in a ton of different things. I was thinking of him from the Fifth Element too. Yeah, that'd be he's a general in the Fifth Element. Yeah. Um, Just because I think he has a fair amount of lines in that one too. Yeah, he does. But yeah, he's a great a lot of action films for sure. Yeah, he's like if they need like an authority figure, a cop, that type of thing, and he did a lot of voice work too. But he was, um, yeah, he's another famous that guy actor. I also, by the way, I had that where I was trying to place Melora Walters, who plays Trina, who's the the woman that, you know, swimming from Baltimore. Also, again, very fascinated by that attention to detail that she's from Baltimore and she worked in a steel mill, like A plus, like yeah. for sure. Someone, you know, someone knows their Baltimore history. I thought that was nice. Yeah. But but um, I was trying to figure her out. And first of all, she's in every Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Yes. But she also plays Anna Conkle's mom in Pen15. So uh, it was nice to see her as well. But I, I also, the other person that I for sure want to give a shout out to, who's one of my favorite That Guy actors too, is Mike Starr, who plays Mulligan, who yeah. is the giant. <laughs> Mulligan is maybe the best character in the whole movie. He's a giant electronic salesman. Yeah, well, let's actually can, let's focus in on this. So we played the clip at the beginning again. And so in the clip, you heard uh, Anne Magnuson, who plays Callie, who, again, the, these other fishermen convince, uh, you know, Nathaniel 
to go see her to get his pipes clean. But she is a six-armed blue woman that very much looks like a, uh, you know, a, like a myth- mythological goddess. Yeah, like a Hindu deity sort of. Yeah, and uh, she, so she's there. She's in the cave. You, you heard that clip. But then, I, I think that the Chris Elliott humor. I love it that. So we see them hook up, and she says the line about like, "Hurry up before my husband gets home." But then they give you the scene. Yeah, he comes home. He's got a. He's a giant. Like, and he comes in. He's like got twenty a, feet tall. Twenty feet tall. He's got a white button-up shirt with like short a short sleeve. Short sleeve with the pocket protector, and he's immediately complaining about his salesman job, which he works in a cave. We're told because it's a magical island, and I think he says he sold one thing to a leprechaun. <laughs> he sold one electronic toothbrush to a leprechaun. Yeah. So he's complaining about his day and then he finds Nathaniel's wallet with his ID in it. But it's this whole thing where it's again, it's sort of improv rules of like, if this is true, what else is true? Where they're playing the the reality of the scene. They're a married couple, but they're also two mythical Fantasy beings. Creatures. And so they're having this conversation and. I think it's interesting because he's obviously the wronged party and he's upset, but then he, he kind of has this, like, she says, well, I'm bored. What am I supposed to do? And he, you know, you get to work and I don't get to work. And he says, you know, no wife of mine is going to work. And it's like, you get a real sense of their relationship in this very funny, very surreal little scene. And then that sets up, he's going to go out and he's going to. Get the big the action set piece for the end of the movie. Yeah, but it's it's very well done because it's again it's both silly and emotionally grounded and like I think it does a great job of making him just sympathetic enough to humanize him, but not so sympathetic that you don't feel bad when he's murdered. Right, because you're also still rooting for Nathaniel to defeat him. Yeah. And I think that is a actually kind of delicate balancing act that they and pull Mike, off. Mike Starr is a great bad guy. Because well, he is a big physically imposing guy. If you don't know who he is as well, he was also, he's like one of the heavy, he's the heavy and dumb and dumber. And like, that's you know, probably his most famous thing. Yeah. Like he, he does a lot of comedy roles where he's a big, scary, imposing guy because he's a big, scary, big, imposing scary, guy. Imposing guy. And, uh, but yeah, they, I thought that that was some of the best like filming filmography in the filmography. That's not the, you know, cinematography. That's the word that I want uh, in the movie is the way that they shot the effects so that, cause he walks out into the water and the water goes up to his waist pretty much. And he, the rest of him is above water, but you're doing a combination of him with miniatures. And he's like picking up a little doll. That's Chris Elliott versus like close-ups of Chris Elliott that have a, just the mass of, his midsection, but also a big plastic hand that's holding Chris Elliott. And it's, you know, there's a giant belt that he gets a hold of and chokes him that it's, it's a good use of miniatures and huge props on either side to sell you on the reality. That scene also has arguably the greatest sight gag in the whole movie when, uh, Chalky jumps up to save him and you just see Chalky pounding on the giant's chest. (laughs) Chalky does great work throughout this entire film. <laughs> Played by Academy Award nominee Russ Tamblin, who was probably best known as Riff from uh, the classic 
um, West Side Story. There we go. Which I did see someone on IMDb trivia point out that that means that he played both a jet and a shark. But um, yeah. <laughs> Bless you, IMDb trivia writer. <laughs> Bless you. Uh, but yeah, it, like this movie is super fun. It has a bunch of dumb quotable lines. It's. I don't know. I love this movie. It's like I said, it was formative for my sense of humor, the mix of absurdity and sort of like smart, dumb comedy or dumb, smart comedy. However you want to smart, dumb comedy. That's what we're going to go with. Yeah. Um, Cause it's dumb comedy executed in an intelligent way, as opposed to smart comedy executed in a dumb way. Like a lot of movies that think they're smarter than they are. But I, we mentioned a lot of the cast, but I want to, I want to check in with you and see what you think about this real quick. Which of these to you feels like the most random cameo in the film? Is it a David Letterman as uh, I, I forget what they actually call his character, but he's essentially like a townsperson. I think the, the, the in the cast list, he's old salt, old salt. Yeah. And he he's credited under a fake name, like a pseudonym in yeah, the credits. Earl Hoffert. <laughs> yeah. But so so you have David Letterman. Uh, which I that one actually doesn't feel that random just because Chris Elliott because David Letterman was going to be in this movie. Right. But then your other choices are Ricky Lake playing the figurehead or Alfred Molina from, you know, last week we watched Temple of Doom from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade or Spider-Man or what have you playing the school professor. It's it's Molina. It, I think it is Molina. Yeah. Um, I think it's hilarious that they had Ricky Lake, who was in 94, a pretty big name. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is the time to get Ricky Lake where it's a get for sure. And I love Ricky Lake, you know. Oh, yeah. She's great. She's delightful. Yeah. Um, and obviously but, watch her John Waters stuff for sure. Yeah. She has zero lines. Yeah. She's she just literally just plays the figurehead that casts like sideways glances at the, the sailors periodically and grows a beard sometimes and. Yeah, she's just on the front of the boat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's great. Um, And I feel like if we're talking about cameos, uh, the actor that plays Chris Elliott's dad is actually Chris Elliott's dad. Which is lovely. Which Chris Elliott's dad, who was also a sketch comedy writer. Yes, and a, and a sketch star in the early days of television. Yeah, and I there's a whole thing. I read another trivia thing about the gray bar... The captain being named Graybar is actually this nod to the building that his dad worked in or something. Yeah, there's the Graybar building in Manhattan, and it's related to that was where they wrote the show. Yeah. But yeah, so there's there's a couple of tie ins, which I also I just I'm full of random trivia about uh, this movie and Chris Elliott today, which uh, apparently the Elliots have three generations of them appearing on SNL because his dad appeared on SNL. Chris Elliott was a cast member and his daughter, Abby was a cast member. Yeah. Which is, that's a pretty impressive statistic. Yeah. I, I think it's unmatched. There've been some second generations, but I don't think but, there's another third generation. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine that there is another third generation person on SNL. Until Pete Davidson's kid, his kid, Keep, until Pete D- Davidson's grandkid in twenty years, <laughs> who will appear alongside Keenan Thompson. Yes, 
man, Keenan Thompson's been there a long time. Yeah, I know. Keenan Thompson, I think, is on a run that will never be matched. And arguably, nor should it be. No, he's the only one who should stay as long as he does, like where he's just become a pillar of SNL at this point. Yeah. And maybe one of the most underrated sketch comedy actors of all time. I think he's for sure one of the most underrated straight men because he has that ability to just sit there and react hilariously as just a person who's very put out by what is happening around them, which is an underrated skill because most people go for the joke and like wouldn't trust it to be funny on its own. But like Keenan Thompson, I think really excels at playing the host of a of a you know game show or a guy in the crowd who's watching <laughs> bad theater or whatever that where it's like you need that guy the the every man who's just there to be like oh man well yeah like the david s pumpkin sketch works in no small part to keenan thompson playing the elevator operator right but that's what i'm saying is that's why he's underrated because he crushes it at playing the thankless roles on snl yeah um, it's similar to like the Phil Hartman's and people and the Dan Aykroyd's of years before where they could play that seemingly like inconsequential, but really is everything that the sketch needs. Daryl Hammond was kind of in that role a little bit, too. Yeah, but they could all also be the star and kill it. So, mm-hmm. well, you, you can't get on SNL if you can't be the star in a sketch. Hopefully. There's been some sure. exceptions. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I I know I agree with you. Like yeah. people get cast. Because they can be the star. Yes. Like SNL for good or for ill, they cast people they think are going to be stars. Yes. They don't cast people to be supporting characters. Yeah. Um, And it's probably the right choice when you're making a sketch comedy ensemble show. But who knows? But, you know, I don't write for I don't control SNL yet. I will one day. But, you know, (laughs) you can have it. I don't want it. (laughs) Seems like too much work. And I don't like to stay up that late. Ooh, uh, all right, pass. Never mind, you sold me. <laughs> it's now pre-taped. Yep, Saturday night pre-taped. Yeah, pre-taped from New York. It's Saturday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, live um, to tape, baby. That's how Letterman does it. We're back on track because I mentioned Letterman. Look at there that. we go. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, again, this was also the year that Letterman hosted the Oscars and did the whole bit from Cabin Boy with all the actors reading auditioning for his role by saying, "Would you like to buy a monkey?" <laughs> Which is the most Dave Letterman line that has ever been said in a movie. That's up there with Norm McDonald. Look, I'm tying it all together. Norm McDonald's David Letterman impression on SNL where he just keeps saying. Hey, uh, got gum? Yeah, it's that. <laughs> you want to buy a monkey? <laughs> hey, Paul, you ever, uh, you ever do one of these? Want to buy a monkey? <laughs> <laughs> he has the other, the other great line when he's just like, you don't settle... Do not get the flank stick. You don't settle for anything less than the London broil. Yeah. No, he Letterman's putting in some quality work in his five minutes of screen time. <laughs> and just like um, the cutaway from that scene where he's like, boy, I sure do hate them fancy lads. Which, again, is another super David Letterman line. Uh, yeah. Like, I have a feeling that he didn't have a script. I would hope not. I would hope that that was all improvised between the two of them. Um, and I, I'm sure it was great. No, uh, like you've got five bucks burning a hole in your pocket. Go buy this movie on Apple. 
You've got $5 and 80 minutes to kill. <laughs> and if you don't, I'm amazed you're listening to this podcast. I mean, you listen to this. We talked for 43 minutes, which is you could have watched two thirds of the movie in right. this time. That's not yeah. that math isn't right. You could have watched be, half of the movie. You'd be a little more than halfway through this movie. Yeah. If, if you had started it right now and listening to us talk about it. Um, no, I, I man, we should have just done commentary. We could have just done and just hour. done a live commentary. Yeah. One day, one day. Uh, no, I when I, Chris I, Elliott I, comes on, we'll do a live, a live commentary. commentary of Cabin Boy. Yeah, and we'll get it added to the five dollar Apple TV purchase. It'll be six dollars. Yeah, yeah, and we'll get two cents from that six bucks. <laughs> I, you know what, Chris Elliott can have my money. Yeah, it would just be an honor to discuss yeah. Cabin oh, Boy God. with him. I, I love Chris Elliott. He's hilarious and this movie is one of my i mean it's not like in my list of all-time favorite movies but i have i have one of the i have a bigger soft spot for this movie relative to the amount that it should be loved i think compared to any other movie and like i yeah. love this and no I, it's I a happy, great i was happy we got to watch it no i'm glad you picked it it's a great choice for this month like i was glad that i had an excuse to revisit it and to discover that it's good and because i paid five dollars and own it i will for sure watch it again yeah, it'd be a waste if you didn't. I ain't no fancy lad. Would you like to buy a monkey? Silver Linings Playback is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on Apple Podcasts. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. Hey, this is Chris. And this is Joe from the Curioso Podcast. And we give our stamp of Curioso approval to the podcast that you're listening to right now. 